0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And I want to welcome you back to uh, part four of this series titled Tension, which is subtitled Living in the Balance. And the reason for this series in the first place is because um, the truth is we worship a God that is bigger and more complex than we can possibly imagine. And and for most of us, that's actually a problem. Um, You see, because there's something in all of us. There's something kind of instinctively in all of us looking for the simple answer. We're always looking for the quick fix. We're looking for the truths or the solutions that make sense from our limited perspective. And we're always looking for a simple answer. And because of that, we have this tendency to look at God and look at theology from the standpoint of our own ability to grasp the truth. We tend to see God from the framework of our own understanding and experience. And in fact, if you close your eyes right now, just take a minute and close your eyes. And I want you to do is, I just want you to think about God. I want you to imagine what God looks like right now. now. Now, how many of you have a picture in your head of a man with white hair and a white beard and white robes, right? Come on, let's see your hands. Because I know you guys do. That's right. Most of you. That's right. All right. You can go ahead and open your eyes. Most of us see God this way. And the reason for that is because of our cultural experience. We have a combined cultural experience that gives that image to us. We have seen this image over and over and over again. And so we relate to that image. We tend to see God and the truths about him from the framework of our own understanding and of our own experience. And so to make matters worse, okay, the only experience that we actually know is the experience that we get to live out. And because of that, we have this tendency to then overestimate our abilities to actually understand and relate to God and understand His truth. Let me say that again, okay? The the, the only experience that we actually know is the experience that we get to live out. It's our own personal experience. And because of that, because because of our limited perspective, we have this tendency then to overestimate our ability, because we don't know any better. We have this tendency to overestimate our ability to understand and relate to God and understand His truth. But here's the reality. The, the universe that we live in, okay, or at least the observable part of this universe, is 96 billion light years across. Okay, 96 billion light years. You cannot relate t- to a distance like that. Okay? I mean, think about this. Light travels at 186,282 miles per second. Okay? All right? which, which, by the way, is the same distance if you drove your car 60 miles an hour, 24 hours a day, for 130 straight days without ever stopping. That's the distance light travels in a second. Okay? Now you take that and you multiply that by 60 seconds, and then you multiply that by 60 minutes, and then you multiply that by 24 hours, and then multiply that by 365.3 days for a year, and then multiply that by 96 billion years, okay? that's the distance. Across the known universe. You cannot fathom that distance. Now, you have no concept of that. And to make matters worse, the distance, you know, that's actually just one two dimensional line across the universe. It would take billions and billions and billions of those kinds of trips to actually even see a fraction of the total universe. All right? And, and so it's so big, the full idea and scope of the universe cannot fit within your head. Now, on the other end of this, we all have this basic understanding that, that the universe is made up of two things, energy and matter. Okay? And we, we all know that, at, that, that, that matter is made up of little things called atoms. I mean, that's the basic understanding we have. If you finished high school, you know at least that much. Now some of you, maybe a few few more of you, might understand that that these atoms are made of of, of smaller parts like protons and electrons and neutrons. And even fewer of you probably know that those things are made up of even smaller parts, which themselves are made up of even smaller parts and pieces you know, and so forth. And and so it becomes really hard to relate to. And and guess what? At the very then edge of our understanding of the the microscopic universe, at the very realm of, of quantum physics, there's actually a point where the very nature of reality and time itself begin to break down okay there's a point in quantum physics that they have been able to study that that, that time and in space don't even make any sense okay that once you go so small that, that there's just no reality anymore it just ceases to exist and once you divide time up into the tiniest little possible interval that you can time itself ceases to exist and again that is not something that you can relate to. Okay? And to make it even more complicated, quantum physicists have come to the conclusion that time and space might not actually be real in the absolute sense that we understand what real is. But instead, that time and space is a product of quantum information that make up everything in the universe, including matter, energy, and even the empty space that we think is a vacuum. And again... <laughs> With all of our five senses rooted in the material world, we can 't even process that fully, not to mention the theoretical you know quantum physics world is, is all about quantum foam and higgs bosons and Planck lengths and, and quantum entanglements and string theory and even the most compl- accomplished scientists struggle to intelligently talk about these things with other scientists all right? All right These things about our universe are so abstract that they're beyond our ability to fully grasp now here's the point if at the subatomic level the universe is more than you can understand and the complexity and diversity and mystery are more than you can relate to and by the same token the sheer magnitude of the universe and the complexity and diversity of it is beyond the limits of your ability to fully understand then how in the world are you going to fully understand a god that made all that How are you going to relate to a God that made all that? Because think about this. For every effect, there is a corresponding greater cause. For every cause, I mean, for every effect, there must be a greater cause. And if the universe and the quantum physics is beyond our ability to understand, then God who created those things is automatically beyond our understanding. You see, God, by his very nature, defies A simple explanation. God, by His very nature, leaps past the limits of our imagination. There is no way to know Him except for the way that He reveals Himself to us. Let me say that again. There's no way for you to know God except for the way God reveals Himself to us. And the way He reveals Himself to us is through nature and what we observe about Him in nature, and then what He shows about Himself in His Word. And the way that God describes Himself in Scripture, the way God talks about Himself in Scripture itself defies simplistic explanations. And many of the truths that we find in the Bible about God and about His character and about how we are to live and relate to Him and other people, these truths like God Himself are complex and not simplistic. Like, for instance, the truth about God's nature and his own identity. On one hand, God is one. He is unified. And on the other hand, God has revealed himself in scriptures to be three distinct persons who are all equally one God. That's a trinity. Okay. Well, so which is it? Is he one or is he three distinct persons? Well, he's both. You see, God who created the universe is not, is not going to fit into the box of your imagination. He exists as he exists. And he exists as he says he does. And he says that he is one, that he is unified. But at the same time, he's three distinct persons. And both of these things are the truth. Even though these things Seem to be at odds with one another. What happens is this truth is not actually working against each other. These these truths are working together, you know, like two forces that on a rope. And that create tension. Okay? And this tension supports the truth. Because God, you know, if He is not unified in one, then, then you lose that tension and He's not God. And if God is not three distinct persons, then you again lose that tension. And if you lose that tension, then the, what you end up with is simply a God that fits within your mind. But that's not a real God. Because God... By his very nature, is bigger and more complex than your imagination. And so if you lose the tension, you lose the truth. You see, the truth exists in the midst of the tension of these two points. God is one, at the same time he's three distinct persons. That truth is supported by the tension, just like the truth that Jesus is fully human, and at the same time he's fully God. God, at, at one end of this, is, is, is fully man, and then fully I mean, Jesus is fully man and fully God. He's not 50% man. He's not 50% God. He's not a combination of those two. He is 100% God, 100% man. Now, how does that work? I have no idea. Okay, I can't even explain quantum entanglement. How am I going to understand how God is as he says he is? All I know is the truth that he is 100% God and 100% man revealed in Scripture. And this truth about Jesus, you know, exists in this tension between these two ideas. And that's what this whole series is all about. It's about this tension of difficult truths that we find and that we wrestle with inside the Bible. And so in week one, we, we, we explored the tension between grace and truth. We're told that Jesus came to the earth and He was full of both grace and truth. Both grace and truth. Which is tricky because, um, you know, grace says, I don't condemn you. But truth says... That's sin, and don't do that again. Grace says, you know, you're forgiven. Truth says, you're accountable. All right, well, which is it? Am I accountable or, 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 or am I forgiven? Well, well both. Because that's what it's, it's, it's about both. And then week two, we talk about the tension of obedience. On one hand, you're saved by grace through faith apart from your works. That's what the Bible says. And on the other hand, it says grace without works is dead. Well, which, which is it? Well, it's both because you're saved by grace apart from your own efforts. But being saved in that process changes you. And, and that change is manifested in your obedience, in, in your growing obedience to the word of God. Because the truth is really simple. If you really understand the problem that you face, that you're a sinner with no hope, and you actually understand the price that got paid, Christ on the cross, so that you could actually have salvation, the gift of salvation offered to you. And as a result of that understanding, you turn toward Christ in faith, and you put your hope and trust in Him as Lord and Savior of your life. If you do all of that, you will change Changes is the part of the process. Okay? You will change and you will move towards obedience. It's a natural byproduct of being saved. And then last week we talked about the tension that we find in the gray areas of our lives tension uh, between can I and should I. You see, every, not every scenario, not every decision, and not every personal thing in our life is explicitly spelled out uh, in the Word of God. In fact, in the Bible, there are many things you know that, that we do. In fact, there are many things we do and decisions that we make that simply the Bible doesn't actually like specifically address and, they, and they, we call them morally indifferent acts. They're morally indifferent acts because they simply don't have a clear morally right way or a clear morally wrong answer to them. But uh, we discover just because something isn't morally, um, is something is morally indifferent doesn't mean that God doesn't care because the truth is God cares about every part of your life. okay, And he cares about the implications and the rippling effects of everything you do and every decision you make because everything you do and all the decisions you make actually affect someone else and they affect some part of your life and because of this um, as Christians I mean, And because of this, uh, everything we, uh, and because of this we looked at the, in the Bible and we found six principles that help us to, to balance out this tension between the question of can I do something and, and should I do something. And the thing is, is as Christians, and especially here, here as Americans, we've got a lot of freedom. We have, we have the ability to do lots and lots of different things. But the, the truth is, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. Okay? We need to actually learn to balance between can I and should I. And and to help us with that, we outline six questions to help us live this tension out uh, between these two points. And the questions are this, will this enslave me? Okay, is this something that, that will, will cause me to be addicted? Will, will I have become mastered by this decision? All right, How will this affect the loss? How will this affect people that don't know Jesus? Will, it, will my decision reflect poorly on Jesus and people will turn away from Him? How will this affect other believers? Because we're surrounded by other believers in varying different stages of their maturity. Will I be putting a stumbling block in their way if, if I do this? Or is it wise? I mean, this is a question that we all need to ask about everything, right? Is that a wise decision to make, all right? Or can I do this with a clean conscience? Because sometimes you, you want to do something and you can't explain why it might be wrong, but there's something in you that's just kind of holding you back. And you, Okay, can you do that with a clean conscience? And the most important thing is, will it honor God? Will it honor God? That's the most important question you can ask of any decision you make. Now, if you missed any of these messages, then you have missed a lot. I mean, because this was a quick summary and we've really covered a lot of ground. But um, because all three of these messages, we've covered practical applications that will help you to live the life that God's calling you to live. And, uh, and if you missed that, so what you need to do is you need to go to our SoundCloud page or our church website. The, the address is in your bulletin. Uh, or you can actually listen to them on CD. Just put it, fill out one of those information request, request cards in front of you um, and just put a note on there that you'd like to have you know, whatever parts of this series that you have missed to this point. But, um, but with that, uh, in the first three weeks of this series, we've been really, really practical. Okay? We, we talked about ways uh, of living in both grace and truth in week one and how we're able to grow in obedience to God in, in week two and, how, and, and, and as I mentioned, how we can navigate through the gray areas of our lives and in, in, in those morally indifferent decisions. Uh, but this week, we're actually going to change gears a little bit because there's a attention in the Bible that we need to talk about that really doesn't have your practical application per se. Okay, uh, Like it does in previous weeks, because like again, in the last several weeks, we looked at different types of tension and we developed an action plan and, and steps that to take based on what we 've learned you know and how we live out you know grace and truth and, and how we walk in obedience and how we make morally in different acts that's why we like I said, we had the six questions about about how to make these these decisions and uh, and this week actually is going to be different than that uh, because the tension that we 're going to talk about today isn't so much about what to do instead it's actually something you just simply need to accept and come to terms with okay it's something that we need to acknowledge and we need to embrace and we just need to accept the reality of and it's it's a tension that and It has two forces pulling against each other. And like every other tension, we either tend to embrace one side or the other. We either gravitate towards one side of this tension or the other. And what we need to do is we just need to embrace the truth that exists, that's created and supported by the tension itself. So turn with me to, to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, and let's just jump in here and look at where this tension comes from. Uh, beginning in verse 17, uh, Paul says, Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Which, by the way, is exactly what we talked about two weeks ago uh, as an explanation towards growing to be obedient. Because once you move towards Christ, you change. And okay, when you put your faith in him, you change. The, the old you has gone, and the new you has come. Okay? <laughs> Verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry... A reconciliation, And he says, we've been reconciled to God, and because we've been reconciled, he has given us a purpose to fulfill. Okay, He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We're helping people to be reconciled to God. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, Paul's famous, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are Christ representative on earth, okay? God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're, we're begging you to receive salvation and be reconciled to God. Verse 21 it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, we've heard that before, right? Okay, for our sake he has made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, working together with him, okay, he's there, he's saying, We're working together with God, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, Okay, in a favorable time, I listen to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul saying, don't waste the opportunity. God has given you a chance to be reconciled to him. Christ came, you know, became sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. That is why we're doing what we're doing. That's why we're ambassadors for Christ. We are here to tell you now is the time to move towards God in faith. Today is the day to get saved. And then he says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way. We don't put stumbling blocks in people's way. So that no fault may be found in our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Or in other words, we do everything in our power basically to clear the path so you can have faith in God. Yeah, we do everything we can do not to get in the way of you seeing God and clearly that you, that you can actually be reconciled to God. And, 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 and so we, we do everything we can to get out of the way of that. Okay? And he says, and we do that through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. And then... As Paul continues his point here, he begins to describe the life that they are willing, that they have willingly endured as ambassadors for Christ in order to bring this message of hope to everyone around them. And so as we read this next part of the text, I want you to, 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 to think about this and I want you to notice that in these contrasting statements, there's a tension that develops in this text as a result of this. Paul says, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown yet will and yet well known as dying, and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything now, what's difficult about a passage of scripture like this um, is that when you read through this, it's easy to read this and then skip to the next step. Okay, It's easy to read through this and skip to the next text. And we do that for a couple of reasons. Number one, this text is somewhat poetic, okay? and, and, it's, and it's not explicitly clear from the outset what he, exactly what he's driving at, and it requires some thinking. You have to kind of take it apart. Okay? And, then sec- and number two, Second Corinthians is actually full of great verses and theological truths that really can draw your attention away from a text like this. Okay? I mean I mean there there are lots of great things in Second in Corinthians, like like if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, the old has passed away, behold the new has come. This is a verse that many of us have heard, this is a verse that so many of us hold dear, it's a verse that people memorize, it's a powerful, powerful theological truth. Okay, or what about? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Okay, we've heard this many, many times. I use this text all the time. It's an important text that relates to our role in the world. Okay, or how about the famous line? You know, from from you know one of our favorite songs. For our sake, we made he uh, he made him sin, uh, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We sang that this morning. I can't even hardly read that without actually singing it. That's why I stumble on it. Okay, We sang this song this morning. Or what about... In this one, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. This is one of those ones that Christians give as advice to other people when it comes to being married or when it comes to going into business with people. It's like, hey, you do not want to be connected to, you know, you know, in a long-term relationship with someone that doesn't believe like you do, because you know, you can get yourself in trouble. Or how about this? Okay, for we are the temple of the living God. Okay, how many times have we've heard this before? You know, my body's a temple. My body's a temple. You know, you're not your own. You, you know, you're 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 the dwelling place for for, for God. Okay, you see, second. Corinthians is a theologically rich letter, and in in chapters 5, 6, and 7, there's a lot to talk about and to look at, and there's a lot of theological principles, and there's great memory verses in this section, and because that's easy to be be distracted and just read through uh, verses 8, 9, and 10 in chapter 6 without really stopping and, and, and really thinking about what Paul is actually driving at in that text, but in this text, particularly verse 10, is one of the most important tension points in the entire Bible. It's one of the most important and overlooked truths in the entire Bible. And our understanding or our lack of understanding of this truth will shape our entire experience as believers in Christ. And that might seem like a big statement, and it is a big statement, but it's the truth. Our understanding or lack of understanding of this truth that's in this text will shape our entire experience as believers in Christ. So let's take a look at it again. It says, We are treated as imposters, yet are true. As unknown, yet well known. As dying, and behold, we live. As punished, yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. You see, in this text, there's a tension that is so important and so descriptive of the Christian life. And it is so beautiful, and at the same time, it's so very intimidating. In this tension, there's, there's a darkness that's full of gloom, and at the same time, it's full of light and full of hope. It's a tension that's worrisome, and at the same time, it is, it is hopeful. It's a tension that encompasses the full reality of the Christian experience for those who truly follow Jesus in this life. Because in this tension, okay, it's a tension of saved people living in a not yet saved world. I'll say that again. It's a tension of saved people living in a not yet saved world. You see, our very existence as Christians and as Christ followers, okay? our existence in this unsaved world itself is a tension point. Because as a believer of Christ, the greatest problem I'm ever going to face has already been solved. It's already been taken care of. Okay? I was once a sinner, condemned to hell with no hope of escape, but by the grace of God, through faith, I have been saved. I have eternal life and ultimately have nothing, nothing to fear. The greatest problem I'm ever going to face has already been solved. But at the same time, I still live in this broken, unsaved world. I have to face the horrors and the strife and the bitterness and the brokenness and the pain and the injustice that this world has to offer until Christ comes to take me home. This is the tension point that I live in. I am a saved person living in an unsaved world. And that's what Paul is describing here. We are treated as imposters, yet we are true. True unknown yet well known as dying behold we live as punished and yet not killed as as sorrowful yet always rejoicing as poor yet making many rich as having nothing yet possessing everything. That's the reality we live in as Christ followers. We are saved people in a not yet saved world. And, 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 and the pastor um, and teacher John Piper, he actually paraphrases this text and he says this. He says, people see us as imposters, yet in spite of that, we're real. We are virtually unknown in the Roman Empire, nobodies, but in spite of that, we are well known by the one person who matters, the creator of the universe. We are dying, our bodies are wasting away every day, but in spite of that, our eternal life in Christ is untouchable. We are punished, but in spite of that, God has not seen fit to take us home. We are sorrowful about sin and, and misery and, 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 of the world and our own pain, but in spite of that, our joy is unshaken and constant. We are poor and have little wealth and power in this world, but in spite of that, we are making many people rich with a treasure greater than anything else the world can offer. We have nothing compared to the lovers of this world, but in spite of that, we are heirs with Christ of His Father's estate and possess everything in Him. You see, we live in this tension as saved people in a not yet saved world. And this tension in this life is marked by these extremes. In fact, the best phrase in this entire text that summarizes, I think, the entire Christian experience of living as a saved person in an unsaved world comes from verse 10 where, where, where Paul says, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You see, as Christians, we rejoice in the fact that we're saved. We rejoice in God's grace and His mercy. We rejoice in the love that He's given us and the love that we share with other people. We rejoice in the wonderful gifts of friendship and community and family. We rejoice in all the blessings that God gives us. We rejoice when those we love and we care about turn to faith in God. But at the same time, we're very sorrowful. Sorrowful for the sin that continues to haunt us. Sorrowful for the injustice in the world around us. Sorrowful for the pain and the misery that affects those people that we love and that we're close to. We are sorrowful for so, so many reasons. The Christian life is actually this tension between sorrow and joy. Because both of these, both of these are always present in our lives. Just like this last week. This week we celebrated so many of our children taking the next step in their lives. Sixth graders move to junior high school. Eighth graders graduate and become high school freshmen. Seniors graduate and they move on to the rest of their lives, whether it's work or college or just sitting at home spending the summer playing Xbox at mom and dad's house. Okay? It's a time for joy. We celebrate this. This is an exciting time. We rejoice you know, as our, in, our, in, our, in our children growing up, but, it, but it's all tempered. All of this has been tempered. For the sorrow we feel for, for Devin Ward and his family. Okay. Devin graduated last year, he's he he went to the army and he he's missing. He's been gone for two weeks, nobody knows where he is. Okay? we you know, we, we sorrow for him and, and, and his family. We're really concerned about him. Or how about, you know, the Jackson family? They lost Mama Dee, right? I mean, she passed away the day before graduation. It's so less than 48 hours. We experience the highest of highs and, and the lowest of lows. We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That is the tension that we live in and we walk in as followers of Christ because to follow Christ is to know the true, glorious joy that only comes from him. Because we are saved by His overwhelming love and grace. We know joy because God loves us and He gives us a love for other people that changes everything. We know joy because we have hope that it cannot be taken away from us and cannot be extinguished. We rejoice because we are children. We are children of the living, one true God. But at the same time, as followers of Jesus, we know true sorrow. To follow Jesus means to understand and to know the cause and the cost of our sin. To follow Christ is to see with our eyes wide open the pain and the misery that are found in the world around us. To be sensitive to things like cancer and birth defects and profound mental disabilities and divorce and child abuse and like abortion, terrorism and earthquakes and tsunamis and, and racial hostilities and white collar crime and sex trafficking and then poverty and hunger and a thousand daily frustrations that make our life hard. To follow Christ is to truly see things as they really are. Broken and stained by sin. To follow Christ is to sorrow so very deeply. To be a Christian means to truly understand what sorrow is. In fact, John Piper says, The gospel brings life. And living things see and feel reality for what it is. The saved soul sees more sorrow than the dead soul. And therefore, Christians know more sorrow than when they were spiritually dead. They weep for those who weep. And they know more reasons to weep as believers than they did as unbelievers. So come to Christ and learn to weep. Come and learn to groan about things that before would not have phased you. And he's right. Before I was a Christian... I thought I knew sorrow. I thought I knew and understood sorrow. But once I came to know Christ and I realized how shallow my understanding of sorrow really was because once I began to follow Jesus, my ability to love and care for people got deeper. And as that ability got deeper, my capacity to experience sorrow for these people got deeper as well. And so to follow Jesus is truly to know sorrow. And to follow Jesus is to walk in this tension between sorrow and joy. Now this tension that we talk about, like every other tension has this tendency to drive us to one end or the other. We, 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 want, we tend to gravitate towards one side or the other. You know, Some of us will gravitate towards sorrow. Some of us will gravitate towards joy. And we see this All the time in Christians and in churches around us. We see Christians whose primary focus is colored by sorrow. They look at the world and all they see is pain and brokenness and suffering. And and, and many of these people become dark and pessimistic about the world. And everything that happens is just a confirmation that this world is headed to hell in a handbasket. And many separate personalities, because of that darkness, are drawn not to the hope of Christ, and not to the power to live a holy life in a fallen world or to grow in grace and forgiveness. They are drawn instead to the darkest parts of eschatology or or the end time theology. Now some people call that prophecy, but it's actually incorrect. Okay? Um, prophecy is much more than, than Bible verses about the end times. Prophecy is actually God speaking through his word in present and future tense. The study of the end times is actually called eschatology, and it certainly includes prophetic things, but it's not the sum total of prophecy itself. And people who are drawn towards the sorrow side of tension will tend to be drawn towards an unhealthy interest in eschatology because all their focus is on is what's wrong with the world and that what everybody's doing and what the government is doing is proof that the world is going to end in a couple of years. And these people tend to focus and study popular theories and endless speculation about shadow governments and planes falling out of the sky and and what might the Antichrist be and, and where the United States fits in this instead of studying what they really need to study, which is obedience and personal holiness and grace and forgiveness and loving your enemies and actually walking as a disciple of Christ in His image. But the gravitational pull... Towards sorrow tends to make people dark and judgmental and fatalistic and obsessed with unessential doctrines like eschatology. Now let me be really clear about this. I'm not saying there's no value in studying eschatology or working through the differing perspectives on how you know when how or when Jesus is coming back to make things right. Okay, I think this is an interesting topic, and I think people uh, it can help them become familiar with the Bible. And I think that that the reality that Jesus is in fact one day coming back to make all things right, regardless of the timing of that, is, is foundational for our hope. But let me just let me warn you. Okay, if you can argue the tenets of premillennial dispensational theology, okay, and you're running around telling people they need to get right with God before Jesus comes back, but at the same time, you're living a life that's not an example of personal holiness, and you're, you're not growing in obedience to God and His Word, and you continue to live in open sin and rebellion to God, then you have a credibility problem. I mean, if you're worried about someone, you know, about some rapture happening, but you're not worried about the fact that you're living in opposition to God's Word... Okay? And you're only focused on the sorrow side of this tension. Okay? Not only that, you're sideways with your walk with God. And I'd give you the same advice that, I, that I, I've given, that Paul would give, which is to examine yourself. Because if you are not moved by the gospel to joy, and that joy doesn't cause you to celebrate and make you want to honor God with your life and make you more obedient to his word, something's wrong. Now on the other hand, what we see is when people focus on the opposite direction is it's all about joy and God's goodness and and they buy into this lie that if you will just come to Jesus then everything in your life is going to be great. Everything in your life is going to be automatically better. But if you have faith in Jesus, he's going to solve all your problems and your life is just going to be simply easier. That Jesus is going to take care of all your issues and and if you're not experiencing it, then you just haven't developed enough faith because God doesn't want you to suffer. He's just going to fix everything. He's just going to make... He just wants you to be happy. And, And from this idea, we have these extremes of... And the prosperity gospel that tells us that God just simply wants us to be wealthy, healthy, and happy. And that God is here to give us our every desire and to bless us all the time. And we just need to claim it and proclaim it and have faith. And that Christians are to be the happiest people in the world. And that the joy should always be with us all the time. But the problem is that is not at all even close to what Jesus said. In fact, Jesus promised that in this world you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. That's Jesus' direct quotes. You will have difficult times. You will struggle. James, the brother Jesus said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Paul, the Apostle Paul, in Romans five three says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange is happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share, in, share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad to share when His glory is revealed. Jesus didn't promise us that everything was going to be great all the time, this side of eternity. Actually, he promised the opposite of that. And so, if you're someone who's focused only on the joy and God's blessing, and, and you encounter, and when you encounter sin and misery, you know, in the world, and all you can offer is just, "Hey, turn to Jesus, and He's going to solve all your problems, and you're just going to be happy." Um, you also may be sideways in your walk with God, and I would encourage you also to examine yourself, because the truth is. The Christian life exists between this tension of sorrow and joy. We experience sorrow because of our continued failure in sin. But we rejoice that, God's, that Christ's grace is sufficient for us. We sorrow you know, over the heartaches that we see in the world around us, but we rejoice in the fact that Christ one day will wipe away every tear. We sorrow because of the violence and exploitation and the senseless way that people treat each other in this world around us, but we rejoice that Christ is going to come back and that He is going to righteously judge the world. We sorrow because of sickness and disease and death, but we rejoice in the great Healer who gives us eternal life and one day will give us our glorified bodies at the resurrection and there will be no more pain or more, no more disease or sickness or death. We sorrow for those who, who died but we rejoice for those who died in Christ because we know where they are and that we're going to get to see them again. We sorrow that the world is rushing headlong to embrace secularism, but we still rejoice that there's still so many faithful people sharing the truth of the gospel. We sorrow at all the uncertainty and the chaos and the darkness in this broken world, but we we rejoice in the sovereign king who is in fact in control of all things and who works all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You see, that is the Christian life. It is precisely the tension between sorrow and joy because, because Christians, people who follow Christ, Let's just be honest, we're the saddest people in the entire world. We are the saddest people. If you love God, then you're going to love what God loves and God loves people. And if you love people, when people hurt, then you're going to hurt. Because we sorrow when we see pain, when we see heartache, when we see brokenness. Our hearts ache deeply for people like Devin and his mom who, by the way, hasn't hasn't talked to her son in over two weeks. She's terrified, worried about him. Our hearts weep for people like Dee's family who are in mourning over her loss. Our hearts break for for children who go hungry and young girls sold into sex slavery. Our hearts ache for those who suffer the ravages of cancer and those family members who have to stand and and helplessly watch them suffer and die. Our hearts ache because we belong to Christ. Our hearts ache because we are made more and more like Him. The Bible says that Jesus is a man of soul sorrows and acquainted with grief and Jesus saw his friend friends when he saw them broken hearted and grief stricken the Bible tells us that Jesus wept the truth is that Christians are the saddest people in the entire world because there's just so much to be sad about but we're also the most joyful because in spite of Of the darkness, in spite of the pain, in spite of the brokenness, and all the helplessness, we have an undying hope because we know who it is that holds us. We know who it is that's in control. And we know that He provides for us and He meets our every need. We know who it is that can turn that we can turn to for everything. We know who it is that we can fall down on our knees in desperation and cry out, Abba, Father. We know who it is you know, that, that loves us no matter who we are, no matter where we've been or what we have done. And we know that He has promised to never leave us or forsake us. And He has promised to deliver us safely home. And He has promised to resurrect us And He's promised to live with us for eternity. And we know, oh, how we know that He is faithful to keep His promises because He took all of our sin and He took all of our sorrow and all of our brokenness to the cross and He gave His life for us. And three days later, He rose again, proving that He is what He claimed to be and that He will do what He's promised to do, which is to save us. And and, and He will save us even though we live in an unsaved world. It is that truth that we continually, forever rejoice. If you're a Christian, your life is in fact as tension. Okay? It's a very definition of tension. Because we are treated as impostors and yet true. As unknown and yet well known. As dying and behold we live. As punished and yet not killed. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As poor yet making many rich. Is having nothing yet, possessing everything. If you follow Christ, when you then you will live and you will continually live in this tension of being a saved person in a not yet saved world. Okay. And it will be like that until the day that you die or until Jesus comes back. So embrace the truth. Embrace the truth of this tension between sorrow and joy. When you sorrow and when you suffer and you worry. Rejoice. Rejoice because your hope is near. Rejoice because God loves you and is at work in you, progressively changing you, making you into the image of Christ. Rejoice because He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. But at the same time, when you rejoice in the gift of salvation, the gift of God's grace and His blessings, also remember, weep for the lost. Cry for the afflicted. Sorrow for the sin that stains everything. Because in this life, until we step off into eternity, we will continue to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. John Piper um, offers uh, words of encouragement about this text. He says, you dare not cease to pursue your joy with all your might for the rest of your life. Until you meet Jesus face to face. Because if you are indifferent to your joy in God, you are indifferent to the glory of God. And that's very dangerous. But the unspeakably good news is that God is glorified in you when you are satisfied in Him. And therefore, sorrowful yet always rejoicing in the glory of God is not only deeply satisfying to you, in all your suffering, but it also is a great honor to God. It is supreme, all-pervasive, all-unifying passion of saved souls in a not-yet-saved world, rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, let me say this, this phrase one more time. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing in the glory of God, is not only deeply satisfying to you in all your suffering, but it also is a great honor to God. God is glorified when you live and embrace the tension between sorrow and joy. And this tension of living as a saved person in a not yet saved world. So this week, I want to encourage you, glorify God. Glorify God in all that you do, whether it's in your sorrow or whether it's in your joy. Let me pray for you. Father, Oh, how I wish at times it was as simple as believe in Jesus and all my problems would go away. But I rejoice in the fact that this set of eternity is not that. I rejoice actually in my ability to sorrow for people. I rejoice in the fact that I'm able to to be hurt and broken over sin because it, it, it hurts you. And so I just pray all of us would just be sensitive to that. That we would just continually walk in this truth. You know, it's not something we have to do. Just we just have to understand and walk in it. That there are just things about this world that are broken and wrong, right? But we don't just get one dimensionally focused on that. We also see the hope and the light, the hope that you've given us, that we're to be called light bearers, not darkness bearers. That we're to be the called be the ones that actually let people see our good deeds so that people would turn and glorify God. We're to be those ones that are here creating pockets of your kingdom on earth. And we know that it's not going to be right until you come back. But We also know that hope is not lost because you died to save us. And so I just pray that we walk in that. We would walk in that, never focusing too hard on how negative things are. But at the same time, we're mindful of the darkness that, that exists in this world. And that we would just be the bearers of light. That we would love with a reckless abandon our neighbors. We would love unconditionally our Christian brothers and sisters. And that we would love with an unknown, absolute kind of love our enemies, Lord. And we would walk in forgiveness. That we'd forgive as we've been forgiven. That we'd walk in that grace. That we'd extend grace the way it's been extended to us. Lord, and that we wouldn't be focused on things that just draw our attention from your glory. Let us be be glorified in everything we do and say. Let our hearts be moved by the things that move your heart. Help us to walk and be recreated in the image of Jesus Christ himself. And I pray that in this congregation you raise up a people who love you and are passionate for your name, and that, that these people would go out into the world and share the hope and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that you bless all those who are here and you protect those who are not here and I pray you would just continue to grow our church family for your glory we thank you and we praise you in the name of Jesus we pray amen thank you for listening you've been listening to the teaching ministry of pastor Sherman Burkhead check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org and please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world